Well, church, question for you this morning. How are you? How are you doing? Many times we are asked that question kind of as a passing greeting throughout the week, and we answer the question that's given to us without really giving it a second thought, and the answer off the bat is, yeah, I'm, I'm good, fine, doing well, doing well. But really, how are you? If we ask the people who are closest to you, that know you well, how would they describe you having watched you this past week? We admire those people whose joy seems untouched by the circumstances of life. But the reality is, is that for many of us, joy feels fragile. It feels like a house of cards that could tip over at any moment. When we wake up in the morning, we don't, no one wakes up wanting to end up miserable that day. But as Jesus said, each day has enough, tr- enough trouble of its own. And it's that trouble that we face in the coming day that, that can threaten joy or provoke fear or tempt us to worry or leave us angry or bitter. But friends, what if, what if it didn't need to be this way? What if we could rescue joy from being held hostage from life's circumstances? What if it's possible to find a joy that's more than a pasted-on smile or mere positive thinking? What if there was a joy that was a, an unshakable contentment? Do you believe that that joy is possible? How can we have peace, joy, despite our circumstances? How can we trust God when life puts us in a situation where pain feels unbearable? Well, those are the questions that we've been wrestling with, and we reach the conclusion of a book that addresses those questions today in Habakkuk chapter 3. So let me encourage you to open up your Bible with me, open up your Bible or turn your Bible on, and go with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. If you're kind of jumping in with us, uh, we've been going through this book as a church for four weeks. If you're wondering where Habakkuk is, just go start with Matthew in the New Testament. Go back a few few books, and you'll find it right there in the Old Testament. So today is the conclusion of that study of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament to the kingdom of Judah sometime in the 7th century B.C. And the prophet, we know, was bothered Because he looked at the people of God, and what he saw among the people of God in the house of God was wickedness and violence and injustice. And so his first question that we find in this book is, God, why don't you do something about this evil? How can you stand this evil among your people? God's answer in chapter 1 is, I am doing something. I'm, I'm raising up the Babylonians as a reproof. Okay, that's good, but... It provoked Habakkuk's second question that we saw in this book. Habakkuk asked God, hold on God, how can you, a holy God, use an evil instrument like the people of Babylon for your purposes? This doesn't make sense. What are you doing? And God's answer came in chapter 2. Habakkuk, you've got to trust me. 
This might not make sense, but you've got to trust me. In the end, when I'm done, I'll give you a peek into the future. When I'm done with Babylon, they will answer for their pride. So we, we've seen the, in this book, Habakkuk has been wrestling with difficult questions, with a problem of evil, with, with the, the righteousness of God. And in the end, when he's done wrestling and praying and searching the scriptures, there's nothing left but for him to stand before God and worship. That's how it ended last week in chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And what, we, what we'll see is that by, by the time we turn to chapter 3, all of his questions and wrestling turns to silence and it transforms into a prayer of response. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. It's a fun word to say. In verse 1, we're not exactly sure what that term Shigianoth means. Most likely it's a musical term, and that, that idea of this being a prayer or a prayer that's meant to be sung is confirmed by the last sentence in verse 19, because it says, to the choir master, with stringed instruments. So it'd be us saying, okay, Jason, we're going to sing this prayer now. That's what we would say with this, with this, with this chapter. What, and the point is, is what God was saying to Habakkuk was not reserved for Habakkuk alone. It was meant for all the people of God to know. It was meant for all the people of God to rehearse and remind themselves, to, remind themselves of these truths about God that are being prayed and sung in chapter 3. Judah was about to go through some very dark days as Babylon invaded their nation. They would need the truths that they were that they were are rehearsed in Habakkuk 1 and 2 and 3. They would need these truths in order to trust God despite the circumstances that they were in. And so Habakkuk sets up an example for us as the people of God to follow. How can we trust God in dark days? Number 1, by submitting to God in prayer. That's what we learned from Habakkuk in chapter 3. Point number 1 is this. Submit to God in prayer. And we're going to see that in verse 2. Verse 2. Verse 2 begins this way. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So he's, he's continuing to pray. He's continuing to wrestle with God in prayer. The fear that he mentions at the end of verse 2 is really a term that refers to a sense of awe. Or wonder at the majesty of God. So as, as Habakkuk has wrestled with the sin of his, of, of his people and the sin in his own heart, as he's wrestled with God and God's plan to bring in the Babylonians, the prophet has come to know in a more expansive vision of a very big God. He says, Lord... I have heard, what does he hear? The report of you. He's come to know and hear the truth about God. His, his view of God has expanded. He, he's realizing this is no domesticated God that's just happy that somebody paid attention to him. No, 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 no. This is 
God, the creator and ruler of the world. It's the God of the Bible who will not tolerate evil, who is holy, holy, holy. He's the God who is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe, whose every molecule and atom bends its, bows down before its ruler and creator, God. It's the God who does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth such that no one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? Because God is God. This big God who is in charge of history, who Habakkuk has come in contact with, when you see this big God, the only proper response is to humble ourselves in worship and in prayer. And that's how the prophet responds. And in the second half of verse 2, he begins to make his petition or his request, what he needs. Look at the second half of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So he's looking, about, he's looking ahead about what God has said is coming their way. And he's saying, okay, when the Babylonians come in, and this is getting really dark and it's getting really bad, in the midst of those years... In the midst of that difficulty, revive it. It's interesting. Notice, he doesn't pray that God would change his mind. God, change your plan. Do something else. He's come to accept God's plan. He has come to submit to God and to his plan. That's what he means when he says, in the midst of his years, of the years, revive it. The it there refers to God's work of setting apart a people for himself under his good rule. Revive that work, God. Do it. Don't let our sin stop that work. Keep doing what you're doing, even if it means bringing in the Babylonians. And that's important because the word revive not only means to preserve or to keep alive, it also means to purify. That Hebrew word for revive means to correct the prophet is saying, God, if, you, if that's what it takes, do it. I trust you. I'm submitting to you. We want to submit to your work, to your plan. Revive it, even if it means dark days. We want your glory. Church, have you ever been nervous when you pray? Have, have you ever been nervous to pray for something because God might actually answer that prayer? I'm not praying for humility. God might actually humble me. I'm not praying for patience. That means if I, if I pray for patience, that means I have to wait in line for everything. I'm not praying for the nations. I might have to go to some faraway country. And I think our hesitation to pray those types of prayers our nervousness in praying those ways is because we tend to think that happiness comes when we can do what we want. When we want. But friends, when we come to God, when we come to God assuming that we have the right to say no to him, when we say to God, okay, you can have this part of my life, but this area of my life is off limits. That's for me to do what I want with. You'll never have true joy if you come to God that way. 
Leaving ourselves in charge is what creates worry. Because it leaves us constantly looking over our shoulder for the next circumstance or the next threat or the next person or the next situation that will destroy or ruin or threaten our joy. And so if we are in charge, if we're acting like God, we'll never have true joy because we're not meant to be God. It's only in trusting God that we've come to find the joy that he's talking about. And friends, a Christian who holds back any area of their life is broadcasting to the world in that moment, God can't be trusted. Not in this area. God's not good in this area. We actually glorify God. We show the truth about God to the world when we choose to follow him, even in dark and difficult and confusing days. It's then when we say yes to God and follow God that we're saying to the rest of the world, I would rather have God than my comfort. God is more valuable to me than anything else this world might offer me in exchange And so Habakkuk prays that way. He submits to God in prayer. He says, Lord, revive your work. Do what it takes for your glory and fame to be known around the world. Do that and make it known in our day. And he closes his prayer in verse 2, saying, In wrath, which he knows is coming with the Babylonians, in wrath, remember mercy. It's interesting, Matthew Henry, in his comments on this verse, says, he points out that that the prophet does not turn to God and say, Lord, I, I see that this punishment was necessary, but I would remind you that we have tried to be good people, and there's been worse. He doesn't say that. What does he appeal to God? What does he appeal to God on? What basis? Not their good works. Judah had not been good. They've been violent and wicked and unjust. They deserved the reproof that was coming with Babylon. And so the prophet appeals to God, not on the basis of their merit, of their good works. He appeals to God on the basis of God's character, his mercy. God's character of not giving us what we actually deserve, which is what mercy is. Well, how did Habakkuk know that God was merciful? Is he just kind of pulling this out of thin air? No. Habakkuk, the prophet, would have known that this is how God has revealed himself to us, even in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6. God reveals himself saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Habakkuk would have known that. And he's appealing to God as the the reproof of Babylon comes in. In wrath, God, remember mercy. This is who you are. This is who you revealed yourself to be. It's pretty remarkable that knowing what was coming his way, what was coming towards Judah, Habakkuk came to a place where he actually submits to God's plan. He submits to God in trust. How does he get there? How do we get to the place where when we are in dark days, we can actually submit to God, knowing that it might mean painful times ahead? I think in part it comes from making a choice to no longer obsess about ourself, our people, our nation, our culture, but instead choose to fix our eyes on God. 
Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote it this way. He said, our troubles can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. That's helpful. He's not saying that we can't look at the problem or care about those things. We should. When you stub your toe, your toe hurts, what are you focusing on? Your toe. Pain demands our attention, so it's appropriate for us to give it attention. But the challenge is for us as Christians to actually look at that pain, that difficulty, those questions, those conundrums in light of God and who he is and what he has promised so Christian, if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, hardship is, we need to remember that hardship is not, hardship is not a sign that God hates you. Although Satan may whisper that in your ear. Our hardship that we go through is a reminder that God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12 reminds us that, that, God's, that hardship is, is a reminder that God disciplines us. He loves and it's a reminder that we are his sons and his daughters. That hardship, that discipline is an expression of God's love for us and bringing us to himself. And friends, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Church, ask, we, we need to ask ourselves, have the trials that we've gone through this past year are they confirming of our faith or have they shaken our faith? God's agenda will not fail. And so as we go through dark times like this, we can, like Habakkuk, trust that God is good, that he has it under control, and we can submit ourselves to him and to his plan in prayer. And when we, like Habakkuk, wrestle in prayer until we submit to God in prayer, it's then that we will find ourselves on the road to God's blessing. The path to joy. But let's be real here. Let's be honest. When life hurts, it's easy to assume that God hates us, that God's indifferent, that God's cold towards us. And in a few in, 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 a, in a short time from when Habakkuk is writing this, Judah and the rest of God's people would be wrestling with these dark thoughts about God when the Babylonians came in. And so in order for the people of God to trust God, they have to not only know that they can submit to him, they have to know that he's trustworthy. So where does the prophet take us next? How does he show the trustworthiness of God? Point number two. Remember God's past mighty deeds. Remember God's past mighty deeds. And we're going to see this in verses 3 through 15 of our text. Look at verse 3 with me. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. We'll stop there for a second. Paran is near Mount Sinai in Egypt where God would have given, uh, they had, you know, the, if you remember the story of, of Israel, they had just come out of, out of, out of Egypt. 
uh, they, you know, in, in, in the Exodus, and they stop at Mount Sinai, and God gives the, the law to Moses. That would be where Paran is. Taman is then further east, um, where the promised land is. So when, he's, when, he, when, he's, when he's saying Paran to Taman, it's his way of saying, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going we're gonna to go back in history and trace God's provision and his protection and his care for his people in the Exodus. We're going we're gonna to look at all the things that God did to get them out of Egypt into the promised land. That's what he means by that, the, the, Taman to Paran. Selah is just a term, uh, a musical term. We see it in the Psalms a lot that likely means pause, slow down, and reflect, right? So think about what we just said. He goes on in verse 4 then, and he says this. He's, he's going to start recounting what God has done in the Exodus to protect and provide and, and save his people. His brightness, he says in verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Now, when you think, when you think about the plagues, what, what, what do you think of? What, what, do you think in, what do you think in history he's talking about? The ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt to deliver his people. So when Moses came to Pharaoh at God's instruction, and he said to Pharaoh, who is one of the most powerful men of the powerful nations in the world, says, all right, Pharaoh, the Lord said, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh's response was cocky. Who's Yahweh? Who's this Lord you're talking about? The God of Israel. Why should I, I'm Pharaoh, why should I obey the God of Israel? I'm in charge here. I don't even know this God. Ten plagues, boom, 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 boom. By the the end of the ten plagues, Pharaoh knew who God was. And his cockiness became humility, and he began to beg Moses, okay, leave, please, please. I'm seeing something of Yahweh now. Verse 6. He stood, referring to God, and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I love verse 6 here. He, he says that God stood and he measured the earth. Another place that we see this idea of God measuring the earth is in Isaiah chapter 40, where the greatness of God is once again, in a similar way, put on display. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He, God, will tend his flock like a shepherd and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? And the answer is, God has. God is the one who can measure the earth with a span of his hand. And notice in Isaiah 40, it's this God who shepherds his people. And I love how Isaiah describes him. It's God who gently leads his people. You know, it's often people, when, when people are harsh or bitter, it's, the, the harsh are often harsh because they're intimidated. They're insecure. They're scared. They're grasping for control. And so they, they make themselves big and harsh. 
It's the people who are confident and who are secure, who can lead with gentleness. And God leads his people like a shepherd with gentleness. You know why? Because he's God. He marks off the heavens with a span of his hand. He measures the earth on the scale. He's God. He's in control. He is not intimidated or threatened by the nations that oppose him. We're also told in verse 6 that the king stands. When the king stands, he's about to render judgment. So that's the image here in verse 6, that the, the king stands and he's about to render judgment. And so as the prophet looks back on God's past care for his people in the Exodus, he sees God standing up in defense of his people against the nations that want to destroy his people. When God stands up to render judgment, the eternal mountains, this symbol of immovability, they shake and tremble. The nations shake and tremble. And the point is, friends, this is the power of God for his people. When he comes to deliver, he comes with this might, with this authority, and with this power. Verse 7, he goes on, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So if you, if, again, if you're familiar with the story in the Old Testament of the people of God, Kushan and Midian were some of the powerful enemies who threatened Israel to destroy them. And we know that Kushan and Midian were nomads. They lived in tents. And so when he says what he says in verse 7, that the, 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 the curtains of the tents were trembling, it's this image that when the enemies of God saw God show up, what do they do? They ran. They took cover in their tents. You could, you could see the tent curtains sh- trembling as if the tent curtain could protect them from God Almighty. This is how God's enemies respond when they actually see God show up in defense of his people. But then he goes on. As he reflects on the past deeds of God, he goes on in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling forth for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God's people are in trouble. That's what he's remembering in the Exodus. They're being threatened from the left and from the right. And so God comes out in this vision of a warrior. He comes out as a warrior to protect his people. And what he's remembering in verses 8 through 12 are some of the specific events of what God did to deliver his people. When he's, when, he's remembering, when he's remembering God's indignation against the sea, that's pointing back to God commanding the Red Sea and parting it so that God's people could go through. He's remembering God parting the Jordan River. He's remembering in Joshua when God told the sun and the moon, stand still so I have time to wipe out the enemy of God's people. And the sun and the moon stood still. In each instance, every act of God that he's rehearsing here in 8 through 12 
is, was a reminder of God's power to deliver his people and destroy their enemy that threatened the people of God, that made them scared. God can move mountains. When God shows up, they tremble and shake. When God shows up, seas part in half. When God shows up, rivers part in, in half. Everything, church, everything is at God's disposal. Everything, every molecule, every atom of existence in the universe is a servant of God. When he says, do this, it obeys. You know why Jesus walked in the water? Because as the king of kings, when he said, water molecules hold me up, they did it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's creation responding in obedience to what God tells it to do. That's what Habakkuk is rehearsing and remembering. And again, the language that, 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 that Habakkuk uses is that of the warrior. Show, God is a warrior showing up. So when God the warrior shows up, that explains why there's such harsh language. Notice the harsh language. Verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. Verse 5, pestilence and plagues. Verse 6, mountains scattered, hills sank low. Verse 7, nations trembling. Verse 8, wrath, anger, indignation. Verse 9, you see the weapons of the warrior, bow and arrows for battle. Verse 10, raging waters. The point in all of this again, church, is that when God shows up, it's terrifying. Because his power is terrifying. Now we know why Habakkuk says, God, I know what you're doing. You've told me what you're doing. So in wrath, remember mercy. Your power is unrivaled. So when you come in power, remember mercy. Friends, when God pulls out his bow and arrow, you don't want to be in his crosshairs. God never misses. So how is this encouraging to the people of God? <laughs> Verse 13. Why did he come? This is terrifying. Why did he come? Verse 13. You went out, why? For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. Let me pause there. That word anointed in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word Messiah. It's the Hebrew word, it's the Greek word Christ. Salvation will come through his Messiah, his Christ. Habakkuk's pointing forward how this is going to happen. Go back to verse 13. He says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced, verse 14, with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. You see what he's saying in verse 14? He, he sees the enemies of God coming against the people of God. They are like a whirlwind that's going to wipe up the people of God. They're going to rejoice in destroying the poor and the people of God. And yet God, he remembers, why did he come? For the salvation of his people. 
Friends, God's power is terrifying when you are his enemy. God's power is terrifying when you are his enemy. But if you're his child, if you're the object of his salvation, then his power, it's still terrifying, but it's in your corner for your defense, for your protection, for your salvation. But now pause and put yourself in the context of Habakkuk again. Step into the shoes of Habakkuk. Your ruthless and violent and wicked neighbor, Babylon, is coming in as an instrument of judgment, of reproof. To reprove who? Judah, the people of God. So if you're Habakkuk, you're part of Judah. In the crosshairs of God's reproof is the people of Judah, and you're in the tribe of Judah. You're living with the people who are in the crosshairs of God's reproof. And Habakkuk's got his own sin. So as he sees Babylon coming in, the question is, will I survive? Will the people of God survive? Will those who are seeking to walk by faith survive? How can God's people live? This doesn't make sense. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by their faith. The righteous shall live by their faith. Trusting in God. And this faith This faith is not just wishful thinking. It is a trust in God that is based upon what he has revealed, what he's promised in his word, what he's revealed about himself. Look back at the end of verse 6. God reveals something very important for us to notice here because this this is kind of how it all fits together for us. He says, His were the everlasting ways. This is important. When, when, When Habakkuk's looking back, and remembering God's past deeds, the reason that it's comforting to him is because God is an everlasting God. Our own nation has gone, just gone through this past week, our own nation has gone through a transition of power. There's a new president. There's new executive orders. Nation, the point is, nations change. Rulers change. We change. We grow old. We die but not God. Not God, friends. There's no term limits to God's rule. He is the everlasting God. He is the eternal God. And so his ways are consistent with his character. His ways are everlasting. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that reality, when Habakkuk looked back, when he looks back on the past mighty deeds of God, he can be comforted knowing, that's my God. Church, when we as the people of God, like Habakkuk, look back and see God working mighty deeds, parting the Red Sea, making the sun stand still in the sky, and we marvel at that, we are meant to remember that's my God. His ways are everlasting. It's not just, he doesn't just save his people in the past like that, and now he's kind of off the scene. That's our God. His ways are everlasting. 
So what's that mean for us? Let me, let me try to work this out for us with one example of what, of what uh, Habakkuk's saying. And I think you can do this with a lot of the different accounts that he's re- remembering. Just take, take the parting of the Red Sea as an example. You can, you can read about this this afternoon in Exodus 14. Right? It's a wonderful reflection of God's salvation. But in verse 8, he's alluding to the parting of the Red Sea back in Exodus. So if you've heard the story, you remember. No sooner had Moses, uh, the, the ten plagues had come upon Egypt, Pharaoh lets them people go. No sooner had Moses led the people of, of God out of Egypt, out of slavery. They just got out, woo and now they're pinned against the Red Sea. There's no way around it. There's no way through it. They're stuck. And now behind them, they see the, this massive Egyptian army coming towards them. You have the massive Red Sea. You have the massive Egyptian army. They're trapped. What do you do? You freak out. <laughs> Time was ticking. Egypt was getting close. And they begin to wonder, has God, has he left us already? In fact, if you read Exodus 14, they say, did you, they come to Moses and they say, did you bring us out here to die? It would have been better, they say. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see how doubt talks? Doubt gets us to believe that it would be better to go back to Egypt. Friends, when we're hurting, when we're unsure of what God is doing, when we're waiting for him in dark days and we're nervous because Egypt's coming up and the Red sea, we have our Red Sea moment when the Red Sea's pinning us up on the other side, we don't know how we're going to get out of this. It's then that we're tempted to walk away from God, to walk away from faithfulness. It's then that we're tempted to think the worst about God. And like the Israelites, we begin to think that Egypt would be better. It would be better, we think, to go back to my old life before I was a Christian, when I could do what I want. And I don't have to care about anyone else but myself. We begin to believe the lie that it would be better. Friends, don't be deceived by that lie. It is not better. It is not better to go back to slavery. It is not better to go back to death. You just have to wait and watch the salvation of God. At just the right time. When they were freaking out and had no idea what God was going to do, at just the right time, God did the impossible. He said to the Red Sea, part. You know what the Red Sea did? Vroom! People of God walked through, safe, on dry ground. When their enemy followed them, boom! Crushed the enemy. You think that was hard for God? No. And as Habakkuk is remembering this, he begins to see his problems, his questions, his dark days in light of God, in light of who God is, in light of his power, in light of what God has done in the past. He remembers his ways are everlasting. He's like, that's my God. And his heart begins to calm down. It's the same thing for us, friends. Friends, if you're discouraged, if you're depressed, if you're exhausted today, open up your Bible. Reflect on who God is. Reflect and remember what God has done in the past to save. The God who parted the Red Sea and made the sun and the moon to stand still is our God. 
He makes mountains crumble for our salvation. He is terrifying in His power. But when His power is for you, we have every reason to rest. Remember His past deeds in the Bible. Remember and recall what God has done to save you, my friends. Kids, I have a challenge for you this week. At some point this week, kids, ask your mom, your dad, your grandparents, ask somebody from the church to, to, to recall what God did to save them. Ask them that. I want to hear how you became a Christian, mom. I want to hear how you became a Christian, grandpa. I want to hear how you became, what did God do? I want you to recall and tell me. Remember. And because God doesn't change, because his ways are eternal, we can remember and see what God has done in the past in somebody's life or in his word, and we can remember, that's my God. Friends, Habakkuk, with all his questions and all the pain and suffering that he's going through, submits to God in prayer. Puts him on a road that is leading to that joy that we're talking about. Second, he remembers God's past mighty deeds. Finally, number three, this is where it leads him, he rejoices in the Lord. Point number three, he rejoices in the Lord. And we're going to see this in verses 16 through 19. Now, I, I, I began this morning asking you a question. I, I asked you, how you doing, church? Habakkuk knew that Babylon was knocking at their door and they were going to invade his country and it was going to mean devastation. There was coming a day when he would watch families ripped out of their homes and forced into exile. It would be heartbreaking. And so if we pause the story and ask Habakkuk, how are you doing, Habakkuk? He gives you an honest answer in verse 16. Look at verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He trembles. And yet you also see his faith at the end of verse 16. I'll quietly wait for what God has promised he will do to Babylon. But I, I want to focus first of all on his physical response in the beginning of verse 16. He talks about his body trembling, literally trembling. His lips literally quivering. We might say that it almost looks like he's experiencing a panic attack. I don't know if you'd call it that, but it kind of looks like it, right? But does that mean that Habakkuk lacks faith? If you look at the physical response of Habakkuk given these incredibly difficult circumstances, does that mean he has no faith? No. It doesn't mean he lacks faith. In fact, when we see Habakkuk trembling like this, it's a good reminder for us that the prophet was a human. Sometimes we, sometimes we look at the people, the apostles or the prophets, and we think, man, they never suffered, they never, they never doubted, they never struggled. Maybe you know a mature Christian, you kind of assume that about them. They never wrestle with things. No, 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 no. <laughs> they, the prophet wrestled. He was fearful. 
And so I think if, if you're going through incredibly dark days, and like Habakkuk, you're wrestling with, 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 with the questions, and you're battling for faith, and you hear, you, hear, you, hear, you hear Satan whispering in your ear, look at how your legs are trembling. You must not have any faith. If you, fe- if you hear that whisper, Christian, remember Habakkuk. Take comfort that even the prophets trembled. It's not that we are fearless or without any fear in, in the face of life's tragedies. Church, what it means is, what matters is what we do with our fear. What do you do with your fear? What did Habakkuk do? Well, he didn't ignore the problem. He wrestled with it. He didn't escape from the problem, you know, in a novel or Netflix or whatever escape that he, you know, he didn't have Netflix back then, but he, you know, whatever escape he would have had, he didn't escape. He didn't go in for a, a, a positive thinking pep talk, you know, pull yourself up, prophet, Get, pull yourself together. What's wrong with you? He didn't do any of those things. So what does the prophet do with his fear? Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Church, this this is the the mountaintop of Habakkuk. These are are good verses for us to memorize, to underline, to pray. All these terms of the fig tree and the, the fruit, those are all agricultural terms. It's, it, it's, it, it's, likely, think, it's likely him looking forward to when, when Babylon comes in, there's likely going to be a famine. He's envisioning the people of God being on the verge of starving to death. But I think we can, we can, we can kind of take verse 17 and kind of spin it out and say, anything that, that gives me happiness, Right? Um, anything that you enjoy, it's not, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, but anything that makes, puts a smile on your face, if all those things in your life are taken away from you, can you have joy? And Habakkuk does. Habakkuk began chapter one complaining and questioning. By chapter three, he's rejoicing. I, I just think we need to remember that, though, too, that we, we, can't, we can't drop into Habakkuk. We can't, like, parachute into chapter 3, right? It was a process. We don't know how long this took. There was lots of wrestling, lots of praying, lots of soul-searching, lots of reading Scripture. It took chapters 1 and 2 to get to chapter 3, and we need to be patient in the process ourselves, and we need to be patient in the process as we help others Trust the Lord as well. But anyways, he, he begins questioning, complaining. He ends up rejoicing by chapter 3. And here's what you need to notice. Nothing changed in the circumstances for Habakkuk. In fact, if anything, it got worse because he had more revelation knowing what's coming. And yet he rejoiced. So the million-dollar question for us, I think that most of us are asking is, 
How did he get there? I want that. You want that, church? You want that joy? How did he get there? He wrestled with God in prayer until he was able to trust the Lord and submit to his plan. He opened his Bible and over and over reminded himself of God's character and reflected on God's past mighty deeds. Until his heart sung praise to God. It may be that you've had a bad day. (laughs) It may be that you've had a bad week. It may be that you've had a bad year. A bad, a bad decade. Whatever the case, having to wait for change when life hurts, having to wait is what often tempts us to fear or anger or bitterness. You don't believe me? Just sit in traffic for a while and see what happens to your heart. Or live through a global pandemic that's going on a year almost. Friends, in times of waiting, we can relate to Habakkuk. God might feel distant or silent. And we need to remind ourselves we we, we don't trust our emotions or our feelings. We trust God's word. But God may feel distant and silent. We may struggle to trust God. But here's here's what's really important for us to remember, church. Not only do we have the past deeds of God in the Exodus to remember and say, God's ways are everlasting, that God is my God. That's true. But we have, listen, we have more than Habakkuk had. We know more that Habakkuk was only kind of anticipating, kind of seeing faintly through the the clouds. He couldn't yet quite see what God was up to as clearly as we can look back and say, oh, we got more. We have more reason to trust God. Just think back to this past deed of God. They took Jesus' dead, cold body off the cross and put it into a grave, a tomb. And those who knew Jesus, they were discouraged. They thought, they, thought, they thought this last three years were all a waste. They were confused. They didn't understand what God was doing. They were hurting. These were dark, dark, dark days. But that wasn't the end of it. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And it's this past event of the resurrection and the empty tomb that guarantees that God is not cold. God is not distant. God is not cruel or indifferent to us. We can look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and know with absolute confidence that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 8, 31, 32. Or as Habakkuk says in verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Friends, if the only thing that God did for us was to die for our sins and rise again, and nothing else changes in your life. That is enough for us to praise God for all eternity. I'm not saying that would be easy, but it's true. 
Because the temporary discomforts that come in this life and the infinite joy of being with God in eternity are far better than we deserve and far better than we can imagine. But what if we're weary? What if we're, what if we're too tired to even fight for joy like Habakkuk had? I see this, but I'm just, I'm, I'm tuckered out. You ever feel that way? Look at verse 19. This is where we'll end. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So we don't just look to the past for examples that inspire us. We look to, we rely on God in our weakness because the Lord is our strength. God, the person of God, is our actual strength. And when we come to him, he makes our feet like that of a deer. His point there is that he makes our feet to have, to be, he makes us sure-footed. So we go from like weak-kneed, kind of walking through life, hanging over like this, to bounding through life with the feet of a deer, even on the high places of, of the mountains. Because God gives us that strength. Friends, that God is our strength means that he's the one that we go to. In our pain, in our tragedy, in our sorrow, we must remember that God does not just see our affliction. He is in the midst of our sorrow with us. He weeps with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, knows what weariness and disappointment and betrayal and dark days feel like. And so he invites us to come to him, the one who understands our sorrow and the one who helps us in our sorrow. The Lord is our strength. Now, for my non-Christian friends who are here this morning in, in, the, in, the, in the church building and my non-Christian friends who are joining us online listening to this sermon, I understand that some will object to what we're talking about this morning as kind of a, a psychological coping mechanism. They'll look at Christianity, you know, look at the past deeds, look to the future reward, and they'll say, well, that's just a psychological coping mechanism to kind of deal with life. And you, you, you kind of see this objection come into play when, when a national tragedy happens and the response is, okay, we're going to pray for this, but then some people will object to the prayer saying, we need more than prayers. We live in reality. We need real solutions. We need real action. And they treat prayer as if it's doing nothing. The assumption behind that objection is that the miracles in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on water, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead are not real historical events. They're just religious myths that make us feel better to cope. And I want to say, if the miracles of Scripture are a myth, then I actually agree with the objection that Christianity is a cop-out. But it's important to understand that we Christians believe that God really did part the Red Sea. He really did make the sun and the moon stand still for a, almost a whole day. Not as a myth, but as a historical fact that actually happened. My non-Christian friend, God is hard hardwired into the conscience of every person, Christian or not. 
He has hardwired into every person the knowledge that there is a God. I, in one sense, we don't have to convince you that because it's, 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 it's hardwired into our existence. We can ignore it. We can, we can uh, deny it. We can suppress the truth about it, but it's, it's there in all of us. And if we're willing to listen, we will hear God saying that he exists in the beauty of a sunrise or a starry night or the view of a grand canyon or in the complexities of the human body or in the various laws of science. And all those things are shouting, there is a God and he has made this. It's why I think that the delight or joy of a good meal or a wonderful book or a movie or a conversation, that joy is real, but it's fleeting. Because God made us for him. And we will not be satisfied until we find true joy in him. Looking back to God's past mighty deeds, finding hope in a better future that he promised us is not wishful thinking. It's not... It's not a cop-out on reality. God is real. His actions in history are real. His promises for the future are real. They are fact. 2,000 years ago, Jesus literally walked on the face of this earth, and he was not just a man. He was fully God and fully man. He didn't just appear that way. He actually was fully God and fully man. He died on the cross he literally died on the cross. But he didn't die for his sin. He was sinless. But he died on the cross for sinners like me and you. He died, but on the third day, God's word tells us that he rose from the dead. Not as a myth, not some spiritual resurrection in our hearts, but a literal, historical, bodily resurrection. That's the linchpin of Christianity. In other words, if the resurrection is not true, Christianity falls apart. In fact, Scripture itself in 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Jesus did not get up from the dead, then Christianity is more than a cop-out. It's a dangerous lie, and we should all shut our Bibles and go home. It's dangerous. But if it's true, if the tomb really was empty, and he did rise from the dead, then he will actually come back again as he promised, he said. And when Jesus comes, his appearance will be good news for some, and it will be bad news for others. Whether his coming is good news or bad news all depends on how you and I respond to him now. Those who think that they're a good person, that they, they can do it on their own, they don't really need Jesus, will find that they're actually opposing God in their pride. And as our text tells us today, being opposed to God is a dangerous reality. But for those who surrender, who submit to God and trust in Christ and him alone, his appearance when he comes back will mean salvation, forgiveness. So friends, turn from your sin. Turn from your self-reliance and trust in Christ alone today. And let him be your salvation and your refuge. Let him be your hope. Let's pray together.